Alright, so I need to do something before we get into the notes that I have not done before, to my shame. So when we think about uh, the whole kind of world of biblical peacemaking, conflict resolution, uh, there's um, uh, a man, Ken Sandy, who wrote the book The Peacemaker. He's a a lawyer, I think he would say he's a recovering lawyer, (laughs) because of how, uh, or when he was a lawyer, and functioning as such, he was so kind of disheartened by how believers, professing believers, acted like unbelievers in the course of, you know, dealing with conflicts, litigation, things like that. And so um, the Lord worked in his life in a way and and with uh, both the gifts and the mind and his biblical understanding that uh, he was able to put the truths of Scripture together and package them in a way that is 100% faithful to Scripture, but also very clear and very helpful in the practical application of how do we resolve conflicts. And so he developed what are called the four G's um, and in terms of summarizing the truths of Scripture uh, into those, those four, uh, these four principles. And we've already talked about one of them. Uh, the four G's, if you think about what we've talked about so far and how... Um, We've placed a great emphasis, especially in weeks two and three, on uh, conflict and its relationship to God. Can anyone guess, as a first step, what what a, a word or phrase in terms of a step one of resolving conflict might stand for? Grace. No, it's a good guess. <laughs> What, what is one of the opportunities that we have in conflict? All right, the first step or the first opportunity we have um, in conflict is to glorify God. Does that sound familiar? Have we said that before? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the first G is glorify God. And so we've talked about that again in weeks two and primarily in week three. Uh, as that is that is what our aim should be as believers when we're in conflict. That uh, before we're we're thinking about the the other person we're in conflict with, or uh, our desired outcomes, or the you know the details of the situation, where our mind should go is how can I glorify God in the midst of this situation? What does God expect of me? How can I uh, pr- uh, represent Christ and His character and His purposes and his priorities, all of those things. How can I glorify God? The second G, which we're going to talk about today, is get the log out of your eye. Anybody know where that comes from in Scripture? Get the log out of your eye? Yeah, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We'll, we'll spend the time in that today. So, uh, you know, the, the title of the lesson is Taking Responsibility, but that's that's what we mean by taking the, or getting the log out of your eye. So we'll, we'll spend today's lesson talking about this. The, the third G, just to give you an advance, uh, is uh, a gently restore. So once we have taken the log out of our eye, Jesus will say, even in Matthew 7, uh, once you've gotten the log out of your eye, then you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. The language of gently restore comes out of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Brethren, if anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. 
So the idea is when you, when, once you've done your confessing, and so today is getting the log out of your eye in terms of recognizing your own responsibility, your own contribution to a conflict. I believe next Sunday, yeah, next Sunday will be confession. Uh, the reason I'm hesitating there is because um, Christopher Green is going to be teaching next Sunday, and I thought he was teaching a different lesson. But anyway, uh, will be confession. Okay, so now that you have your own understanding of your own contribution to the conflict, the sins that you've committed, what does it look like then to um, acknowledge that and, and confess that to the other person? But once you've done that, now you have the opportunity to, to address the, the other party and confront them and, and help them to see, in a sense, the log, or from our perspective, the speck in their own eye, or from their perspective, the log in their own eye, their, their contribution, the ways that they've sinned in this. So gently restore is number three. And then the final G is go and be reconciled. The principles that we'll talk about under that G relate to forgiveness. Okay, once you have confessed your sin and the other party has confessed their sin, uh, what does it mean to forgive? How do you live in your relationship, whatever that relationship is, uh, with forgiveness? What does forgiveness mean? What does it look like? Or, in less fortunate situations, what if the other person doesn't? respond well to your attempts at restoration what if they don't confess their sin and what if they don't forgive you how do you live when someone doesn't want to move toward reconciliation so those principles will fall under go and be reconciled living a reconciled life or how do you live uh, in relationship to someone when when they don't want to be reconciled so the four g's for those of you who came in a little later the four g's are just a step-by-step a, a -step, uh, way of thinking about conflict resolution. We're not using the four Gs as an outline for the class, but everything that we're talking about falls under those categories. And so that's a helpful way just to remember uh, the principles and, and uh, what God calls us to do. And so that's why I have here uh, in your notes, um, in bold there, here we find the second of the four Gs. Get the log out of your eye. And I just I, I acknowledge that we hadn't talked about this uh, before. So G number one, get uh, glorify God. G number two, get the log out of your own eye. All right, so with today's lesson, uh, last week, as it says there, we talked about how, and this was just a brief statement, uh, if false worship is the problem that we're, uh, when we're wanting something to the degree that we're willing to sin in order to get it, or we're willing to sin when we don't get it, uh, if, if, if false worship is the problem, then the, true, then the solution is true worship. That we learn to uh, worship God, first and foremost, glorify God, and we put everything else in its proper context where God would have us to put it. And so the first step in moving from false worship to true worship is repentance. Right? We don't just... Uh, make a change and move forward, uh, Scripture gives us kind of a, a path or a, a bridge of, of that change uh, because we're not just talking about a way of thinking in our own mind that's different. We're talking about relationship. And so you can change your mind, and that's really what the word repentance means. Uh, it just means a change of mind. You could do that, but when you're in relationship with someone, how do they know that you've done that? <laughs> That, that happens, they, they come to understand that you've changed your thinking by means of repentance and uh, ultimately confession. 
So, uh, you have the text there, but if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to turn there in your Bible. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, Jesus says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, uh, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus here is presenting this situation of of conflict, um, and he uses a very vivid picture. And I I trust this is a familiar text to you. Um, But uh, just imagine uh, what Jesus is picturing here, right? He uses this distinction between a log and a speck. And, uh, you know, some of us wear glasses, and when you wear glasses, whether regular glasses or sunglasses, you know that uh, you can take off the glasses and look, and you're like, oh, man, those are really dirty. <laughs> you know, there's dust, there's specks, there's, you know, maybe an eyebrow hair or, or smudges or whatever. But when you put your glasses on, uh, either uh, you, you don't really see them, you just kind of see past them, or depending on what it is, it, it blocks everything, right? If you got a smudge on your glasses, it just makes everything blurry. Uh, or sometimes you do get a speck that's just in the right spot that it just covers everything. But then when you take it off, you're like, oh, that's just a small little, you know, small little thing. And, and so we understand the idea of a speck in the eye. But Jesus uses this language of a log in, in your own eye. So, you know, you picture a big tree, uh, a, a big uh, a tree that has all the, all the uh, branches broken off and, and whatnot. And it's just stuck there in your eye, right? You're just like walking around with this massive log. And, you know, everywhere you turn, you're hitting people and you're knocking things over and breaking things. And people are like, hey, <laughs> do you know <laughs> that you have a log in your own eye? Well, from the perspective, uh, from our perspective, we tend to not be able to evaluate accurately the difference between a log and a speck. We tend to look at the things that our eyes and be like, oh, that's just a small little thing. But what other people, what I see very clearly that other people have logs in their own eyes. We, we see the specks in our eyes, but we very clearly see the logs in other people's eyes. And what Jesus is doing here is he's reversing our natural tendency. And he says, no, no, no. The log is in your eye, and the speck is in other people's eye. He's causing us to weigh differently and to prioritize what is the bigger problem. Our tendency is to say, they have the bigger problem. Okay, yes, I shouldn't have done this, or I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, but they did this, and they did that. That's, they're the bigger problem. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got to change your thinking about this. The priority of, of your perspective needs to be calling attention to your own, uh, your own contribution, what it is in you that has blocked your vision. So let's walk through some of the uh, principles here in Matthew 7. You see in the first bullet point there, Matthew 7, 1 is the sinner's favorite Bible verse, 
right? Don't judge. <laughs> you can't judge me. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, but that's not what it means. It's not judging that's condemned. It's hypocritical judging. It's when we look at other people and judge them for the same faults that we have, or at least similar faults, and act as though we don't have those faults. Uh, We see this uh, very often. Maybe you know someone in your school, at work, and maybe even in your own family who they can see how everybody else you know, acts a certain way or has certain attitudes or speaks a certain way, but they, for whatever reason, are blind to the fact that they do that themselves. And so Jesus is condemning hypocritical judgment. In fact, if, if you look at chapter uh, 7, just a few verses down, verses 15 and 16, Jesus commands us to judge, to, to make distinctions uh, between people. And specifically, in, that, in this context, he talks about uh, those who would be considered false prophets. He says in verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So Jesus says, when someone comes to you uh, claiming the name of a prophet or a leader or a teacher, and uh, they are uh, they're, they're saying one thing, they're presenting themselves a, a certain way, but then their behavior, their lifestyle, or something about them reveals that there's there's a division, there there's a contradiction between uh, their their life and their words. Uh, be aware of that. Pay attention to that. Um, and make a distinction, make a judgment uh, about that. And notice that he doesn't say there what, what the Scripture says in Deuteronomy 18, which Deuteronomy 18 tells us to judge prophets on the basis of whether or not their prophecies come true. I mean, that's how you know a false prophet from a true prophet. If their prophecy comes true, Deuteronomy 18 says they're a true prophet. Listen to them. If it is false, if it doesn't come true, then they're a false prophet. There's no such thing biblically as a false prophet who gives true prophecies uh, or true prophets who gives uh, false prophecies. That's Deuteronomy 18. Here, Jesus is not talking about their words. He's talking about their life, their lifestyle, uh, their actions, their character. And so... um, so he's saying you should judge prophets, uh, whether they're true or false, on the basis of what you see, what you see with your eyes, their lifestyle. And so judging is necessary as believers. But what he's, he's addressing in verses 1 to 5, there of Matthew 7, is the way we judge and the standard that we use. The way we judge, he doesn't say this explicitly, but certainly we would see this uh, in Scripture. The way we judge must be defined by Christ-like character. You know, we should discern uh, things out of grace and mercy, patience, love, humility, uh, etc. As we engage in relationships and we're um, trying to identify uh, what's going on in, in in other people's lives, we should come at that uh, from a gracious standpoint, 
uh, and recognizing that, hey, we're all sinners and we want to believe the best. You know, that's one of the definitions of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we want to promote their good. We, we, wanna, uh, we want uh, them to grow. We don't want to just beat them down and judge people and, and tear them down. So we want to be merciful in even how we speak truth into the lives of others with that when we do. Uh, acknowledge that there's a problem in someone's life, that we want to be merciful in how we express that. We want to be patient in the process of helping someone change. We shouldn't expect uh, instant transformation in a moment. Uh, We want to love them. We want to be sacrificially committed to their good. We want to be humble, approaching them, you know, recognizing that we're fellow sinners in need of grace. So the, the way we judge should be like Christ. In fact, I was reminded of this yesterday that when when we think about Jesus, no one had a higher standard of righteousness than Jesus. Would you agree with that? But no one was more attracted to Jesus than sinners. Jesus spoke the truth, right? He would say, like he said to one of the women who came to him, go and sin no more. Uh, He spoke the truth. He he didn't beat around the bush. He didn't uh, set aside his standard of righteousness. But the way that he interacted with people, the way that he spoke, drew people to him, didn't push them away from him. And so if we have a tendency in our attempt to promote righteousness and and work, work toward reconciliation or point out problems in people's lives, if we have a tendency to push people away, then we can know, I must not be doing this like Christ. (laughs) There's something about me or my approach or my words or my tone or my attitudes or my timing or, you know, something that is not like Christ because people were drawn to Christ. Obviously not the Pharisees. Uh, But some of them were, like Nicodemus uh, and and others. Um, And so the way we judge, the way that we discern problems and, and address problems should should reflect Christ-like character. And then the standard by which we judge must be Scripture, not our own personal preferences. So, you know, sometimes we'll get into conflict and we're in a conflict between personal, uh, about personal preferences. And we can, in a sense, judge someone on the basis of, I think you're sinning, when the reality is you're just not living according to how I think people should live. And there's no biblical basis for that. Now, we might have our own biblical reasoning in the same way that the Pharisees had, if you can call it this way, biblical reasoning for holding the standards that they held, right? There was the scripture that they believed or claimed to believe. And then around the scripture was a layer of man-made rules because they were so committed, (coughs) ostensibly, to obeying the law of God that they said, you know, we don't even want to get close to disobeying the law of God. So we're going to create an extra layer of laws and rules for people to live by so that they don't even come close to disobeying the law of God. But what did they do? They confused their law, their man-made laws, with God's laws. And so they turned things that people could do without sinning at all into acts of sin from their perspective. And we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. As we live in this world, you know, we all have different standards, different 
of things that uh, that we're comfortable with uh, at, at various levels. Uh, and we have to be very careful not to judge others on the basis of our personal conscience and our personal standards uh, instead of what Scripture teaches. So, Jesus is saying that we need to judge, but we need to judge rightly. We need to judge with Christ-like character, and we need to judge on the basis of what Scripture teaches. That's really verse 1 and 2 there of Matthew 7. Now, by plank, when he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log? I think plank might come from the... Anybody have that in their translation? Is that like the ESV? I don't remember uh, why I have plank instead of log. Anyway, um, by plank or log, he is referring to our sinful behavior our words and our thoughts in the situation, as well as our life in general, right? Just the fact that we're all sinners, uh, that we're all uh, not completely conformed to likeness to Christ. And so even in a, in, in a given situation, we may not have sinned in a particular way. We know our propensities, we know our tendencies, and we can uh, readily acknowledge uh, that even if it's not something that we had done in the moment. Uh, you can define sin there as any lack of conformity to God. It's a falling short of God's holiness, which doesn't necessarily imply intentionality. It's just the fact that God is perfect. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly gracious and patient and merciful, and just all of those things, and we are not. And so the fact that we are not, whether or not we've intentionally uh, fallen short or intentionally violated his standards uh, or not, uh, the fact that we are not like God reflects that, that we are in a sinful condition. And we manifest that in the three areas of thought, speech, and action, as you see there. Our thoughts include our beliefs, attitudes, motivations, and desires. Let me draw it this way. Uh, as we talked about last week, uh, the heart is the control center of life, and one of the uh, one of the functions of the heart is cognition, the fact that we think, that we believe, uh, we have uh, uh, thoughts and, and, and convictions, we have uh, affections, these would be things like our emotions, our desires, our values our priorities, uh, and our volition, uh, our commitments, what we're committed to, the decisions that we make, uh, our will in terms of uh, what, we, what we act out, uh, and, our, and our commitments. And so in each of these three areas, uh, we're living day in and day out. We're, we're living on the basis of what we believe, what we think is right, what we think is true, our affections, what we desire, our hopes, our expectations, our priorities. And so we, we live out, we act on the basis of those things. Well, it is true that uh, in any given moment of any day, you might be doing righteousness, you know, whether it's sitting in a class, listening attentively, and so you're glorifying God with your mind while you're receiving the truth, processing it, 
Um, and, and renewing your mind. Um, and we could be doing an act of service. Uh, we could be, whether it's worshiping with our lips during the worship service, we could be serving in a ministry, we could be glorifying God through our actions. And in that sense, in, in various moments of life, we're not actively sinning, right? But at the same time, there is never a time when our thoughts and our beliefs, our desires and values and priorities and even our will and, and commitments uh, are 100% like God. Right? We all have areas of our thinking, areas of our beliefs that are skewed. We all believe things that aren't true. That's why we have to keep learning. That's why we have to keep reading Scripture. That's why we have to keep conforming our, our mind and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12. So we're always in a state of sin. And that's going to change only when we're glorified uh, in heaven or when Christ comes back. But, um, so, so we're not always acting out in sin, but we're always in a condition of sin. And just recognizing that uh, helps us to humble ourselves to say, okay, even if I haven't sinned in the way that another person has sinned that I'm in conflict with, I am still a sinner. And as you see on the next page there, we sin in a couple different ways. Uh, one is by commission, that is by committing acts of sin, thinking, speaking, acting in ways that violate God's standard, uh, where we consciously uh, and volitionally do say and think things that uh, are violations of God's righteousness. But we also sin by omission many times. Not thinking or speaking, not acting in ways that God required. And so often when we feel as though we haven't sinned in a situation, like, I didn't say anything wrong, I didn't do anything wrong, why are they so mad at me? What is there to confess? Because I didn't do anything. Sometimes we have to humble ourselves and say, well, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> maybe I should have done something. And that's why I'm in this situation. We have to consider that possibility that maybe I've sinned by commission. I mean, think about Romans uh, chapter 3 here. Uh, Romans three nineteen to 18. This uh, obviously, by the all caps, that's uh, showing that it's a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, this, I think, is such a, a vital passage in Scripture because it, it reveals to us the nature of humanity. And this tells us what we are like at the core of our beings. Primarily as unbelievers, uh, certainly there's uh, that change of, of uh, regeneration that takes place when we uh, are saved, but this is the core of our human nature under the curse of sin. He says, What then? Are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So that statement right there, those three aspects reflect our nature. Again, as unbelievers. This is not true of believers because... Uh, as believers, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As believers, we have the Spirit who gives us understanding and enables us to understand the truth. 
as believers, we do seek God because we have new spiritual capacities that we, we are able to pursue God. But in our fallenness, this is true of us. And then we manifest that nature, as he goes on to say, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And by the way, isn't it interesting that when he gives the nature of humanity... And he wants to talk about, okay, what, what does it look like? What does it sound like for humans to be depraved, to be far from God? He spends most of his time talking about the tongue, what we say. That's interesting. The tongue is a reflection of our spiritual condition. Not whether or not we're saved necessarily, but it's very revealing. But then he goes on to say, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is how we manifest the unredeemed nature. Whether you're an unbeliever and this this is your life, or whether you're a believer, and these are kind of old ways that still kind of rear their head in our life. Old habits, maybe, that we haven't overcome, where uh, we, we manifest uh, our old nature by how we speak in the midst of conflict, uh, how we act. You know, their feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, destruction and misery are in their paths. I mean, don't, don't think for a second that it is unusual for a believer to be violent. Sadly, tragically, that's common. I don't know if that's common, if that's true of your household, but that is a reality. It is possible for a redeemed, regenerated sinner to uh, become violent in their anger. And I would just say, if that's true in your household, seek help. I was just talking recently to someone who they said they've responded violently in, the, in, in conflict in the home as far back as they can remember. They went even as far back as two years old. Now, we know two years, you know, two-year-olds are throwing tantrums. But he's like, like there's an unbroken pattern there. <laughs> and this was someone in their 50s. Uh, and only now are they finally saying, help, I can't continue this pattern. So if, if violence, if the use of the tongue, a cursing, a poisonous speech, if that's a pattern in your life and you've not uh, been able to overcome that, you desperately need others to come alongside you and counsel you and help you because you can overcome it by the power of the Spirit. That, that can be something that you can say, I was that way, but I'm not that way anymore. You can change if you're a believer. So this is just part of our, our old man that, that still is, is part of us, the unredeemed nature. So, so we have the capacity for sin, uh, even as believers, and this should, this should humble us, that in a moment of conflict, uh, we should not be looking at the other person primarily, we should be looking at ourselves. right? So as Jesus is, is talking about uh, how do we deal with conflict, he says... 
that you must start with you. You must start with you. That's the proper order that Jesus is conveying here in Matthew 7. Uh, That's what he says, uh, verse 3 again, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you do not notice the log in your own eye? Uh, Verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck from your brother's eye. So as we see there in the notes on the next page, starting with ourselves orients us around God's purposes. And we focus first on what God expects of me versus what I expect of others. When I'm in a conflict, I need to to check my own thoughts. Uh, Am I prioritizing the things that I should prioritize? Am I prioritizing what I want? Or am I, prior, am I prioritizing what God wants? Am I thinking about my uh, what, I, what I want as the outcome of this situation? Uh, or am I thinking about what God wants as the outcome? How does God want me to respond in this situation? Am I thinking about what I think is best to accomplish the means or, or, or the outcome? Or am I thinking about what God says is the right way to approach this. And so acknowledging your personal sins breeds empathy, compassion, and patience. It helps me to realize that I'm just like those who sin against me. Right? When, when you're in a conflict with someone, and especially when that conflict is, is the result of somebody's sin that's come at you, whether or not you've sinned in the process, but somebody else has sinned against you, our tendency Again, it's to look at their sin and, and consider that to be the log, our sin to be the, the speck, and to say, you know, they are the sinner. We just label them the sinner. We look at them and we see a stamp on their forehead that says, sinner! And then we look in the mirror at ourselves and we see innocent. <laughs> or victim. Or whatever else. Again, we, we might acknowledge, yeah, I, I, you know, I shouldn't have said that or whatever. But we primarily see them as the sinner, perpetrator, and ourselves primarily as the victim. And so Jesus is saying, no, you gotta, you got to change your thinking. you got to prioritize looking at yourself, acknowledging your own contribution. And what that does then is it helps you recognize, listen, you and me, we're fellow sinners, so the reversal is not, I'm the perpetrator, I'm the sinner, and you're the victim. That's not the reversal. Uh, the, the reverse or the biblical mindset is, we are fellow sinners. <laughs> we are both in the position of needing God's grace and forgiveness. And so when I approach you, I've dealt with my sin, I've sought forgiveness for my sin, uh, and I'm here to, to come alongside you and bring you and walk with you together to the cross so that we can seek God's forgiveness and seek each other's forgiveness. I mean, if we have that mentality, that dramatically changes our attitude, our tone, our disposition, our words, uh, even our timing. And so uh, it's just absolutely critical that that we uh, obey what Christ tells us here and take the log out of your own eye. Just a couple more points here before I uh, just pause for a moment. Uh, This is obvious, but Jesus assigns a greater weight to your sins 
than the other person's sins by calling your splanks and his specks. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, let's say, I mean, I'll, I'll create a terrible situation. Hopefully this is not true in any of your lives. But let's say that um, someone in your life physically attacks you. You know, they, they punch you, they beat you up. And out of your own desperation and anger, you, uh, you cuss them out. And someone looks at that situation and says, okay, I think the greater sinner, I think the greater offender is the person who beat you up physically. (laughs) That seems to be a greater, more significant sin. Certainly, legally, it would be a more significant sin, a violation of the law. Uh, But we would all make that same evaluation. But God is saying... uh, the, the context in which he's talking about is not a legal context. It's not a courtroom context. It's not even the context of God's determination and evaluation of sin and hit the way that he weighs sin, which God does have different weights for sins when he judges sin. What he's talking about is how we should judge sin. And he says, when you judge sin, as a sinner, you place greater weight on your own sin above the sins of others. And here's why. You see the sub-point there. Whatever you can see in the person's life, their words or their actions, you can't see their heart. This is huge. right? As we talked about last week, everything that we do, everything that we say rises out of the heart. And so there's a sense in which whatever you observe, you're, you're observing the manifestation of their heart. But at the same time, you don't know the, the fullness of their heart. You don't know how God is convicting them. You don't know how God is working to transform them. You don't know what their um, you know, what their attitude, uh, heart attitude, uh, is in the situation. Um, you, you don't know their heart, and so you know, like an iceberg, you can see the tip that's above the surface, but you don't know what lies underneath it necessarily, or at least not in fullness. But you do know, at least to a much greater degree, what is under the surface in your own heart. You know if there's bitterness, if there's malice, if there's anger, if there's um, wrath in your own heart. Uh, You know what what drives you, what's pushing you. Uh, You know your own life circumstances and what are the pressures in your life that lead you to to act in a certain way or or that uh, make it easy for you to act in a certain way. You don't know about the other person necessarily, right? Now, depending on the relationship, you might know more than others. Uh, But still, none of us knows the heart the way that we know our own heart. And no one knows our and the other person's heart, even like God knows the heart. And so rather than putting ourselves in the position of judge over that person, we need to put ourselves in the position of fellow sinner in need of grace and recognizing God. I don't know what God's doing in that person's life. I don't know how God is working in their heart. You know, when they said what they just said, I don't know if they feel that pang of conviction or if they feel the satisfaction of, you know, having uh, expressed their wrath toward me. I I don't know. And so I'm going to let God deal with them in that sense. I'm going to let God evaluate their sin and and work at their sin. And I'm just going to focus on my own heart. 
And so when you do that, humbly dealing with your sin puts you in a better position to minister to the other person and help him or her deal with their sin. All right, again, this isn't a denial of the sins of others. This isn't uh, an ignoring or a minimizing of the sins of others. Uh, we always want to be truthful, uh, but we want, because of our own limitations as human beings, we don't know what God knows, uh, we want to uh, obey God by putting the spotlight on our own heart first and foremost and acknowledging our sin. Now, now we'll talk here in the rest of the lesson about how do we do that? How do we practically evaluate our own heart and examine our own heart? But just having walked through that uh, so far, uh, any particular thoughts, comments, questions about any of that? Yeah, I I was just thinking about helping those that respond in anger um, with violence. We could be coming to that part in this whole session where we could point them to God's word because really they need help. I know believers in my family that I've known them to be the rest of their lives and then they grew up to become, to be responding in anger with violence. I'm like, is it Alzheimer's? Is it dementia? Or is it really the heart? You know, but how, it just obvious that they need help. How do we point them out to the word of God that can realign their thinking, their hearts, um, to just see that whatever they're going through, we're all seen as, and they could respond with patience. Yeah. Yeah, I really am grateful that you asked that. Um, I would say this. If you're you're in a position where they would receive counsel, um, then I... Uh, you can work through uh, understanding the heart with them, that the fact that our actions, you know, Matthew 15, which I think we looked at last week briefly, um, or maybe we didn't, but uh, Matthew 15, verse um, uh, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. So the the violence that people... Um, manifest uh, is uh, an overflow of the heart. And so uh, the, the heart needs to be um, examined and, and uh, conformed to Scripture. And so walking through a process of, of uh, you know, patiently working with them to help them to see that they are responsible before the Lord, you know, violence. I don't think anybody would ever respond uh, or, or think about their own violence and say, yeah, I think God wants me to do that. Right? I think most people would recognize, yeah, that's not, that's not right. And so helping them to see you can change, even if this has been a lifelong pattern. Um, so I, I'm not going to go into kind of what does that counseling process looks like. Um, talk about that a little bit in the counseling class, which I know you've taken. Um, but like right now, this person I mentioned, we're, I'm walking through laying the foundation of the heart. We did that this last conversation, and and we'll walk toward repentance. What does repentance mean? What does that look like? And then what are steps to proactively change? I mean, it's Matthew, or excuse me, it's Ephesians four twenty two to twenty four. The process of change of put on, renewing the mind, and put off, uh, stopping old habits, changing your thinking, and then putting on new habits, developing new ways of responding. Uh, and then working through that process with them patiently and lovingly. Um, so if you're in a position to help, to counsel, you can do that. If you're in the position of being on the receiving end of that, 
violence. You're probably not going to be listened to by that person. They're probably not going to have an open ear. And so I would. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, uh, if uh, crime is being committed, because you know, there's there are civil laws, uh, criminal laws against violence, uh, then it is more than appropriate. It is just and right to involve the civil authorities, because uh, someone who is behaving that way uh, is, in a sense, if I can use this language, enabled to continue that pattern by not experiencing the consequences that God himself has established in Scripture, like in Romans 13 when he says, you know, submit to the governing authorities, they don't bear the sword for nothing. God has given us our governing authorities to punish evildoers, and so when we allow evildoers to uh, commit evil with impunity, with no consequences, uh, and it, and we're not, well, we're just allowing them to not experience or not benefit from what God would, would bring to them as a way of thwarting their sin. So that would be one thing. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I would be appealing to them, hey, can we get help? Can we get counsel? You know, sometimes that is communicated, you need to get help, you need to get counsel, and that's more of an accusation. I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's a true statement. But the way it's expressed is not uh, in a way that is inviting. And so uh, it, it, can, it can be expressed in terms of can we get help, can we get counsel. Now, again, someone who tends to respond that way, it's, it would be a normal thing for them to not be responsive to that kind of an invitation or a re- request. In which case, if we're talking about believers who are in the local church, who are members of a local church, Again, uh, another realm of protection that God has put in place is for the church to practice church discipline, to lovingly restore, confront, and restore those who are sinning. And so uh, if you've done that one-on-one confrontation, uh, then the next step is to, uh, Matthew 18, take one or two others. And I think the nature of that particular sin would make it wise to go directly to you know, pastors or elders and say, hey, this is what's going on. I, I need help and allow them to get involved. It's like how uh, Paul says in First uh, Timothy 5 that if there's an accusation against an elder or in Titus 3 uh, that if there's a divisive person, it's a different process than Matthew 18. And so there are some sins that rise to the level of we got to deal with this swiftly and quickly, lest there be uh, damage that is perpetuated. So I would say, again, if you're on the receiving end of that or you're in a position where that person is not going to listen to you, uh, utilize the God-given um, protections of civil government and church leadership uh, to bring restoration hopefully or if not restoration then protection and uh, care if I'm a top party in this relationship should I be encouraging that person to seek civil because the person like oh I don't want to I'm just going to pray yeah. Yeah. I be 
Yeah, that's that's one of the hard things is that when you know someone's experiencing that, you're on the outside of that. You're maybe their counselor, you know, formally or informally. Um, yeah, you need to encourage and, and, and explain to them, hey, this God has given this to you for your protection and for your good. And for, I'll just say, your spouse's good, you know, the one who's being violent, for, for their good, so that they can see their sin for what it is. But um, but the, pers- the person who's being sinned against, um, unfortunately, they, they need to be the driver of that. They need to be the one to make that decision. Uh, the exception in our legal system, and, and thankfully so, is child abuse uh, or elder abuse, uh, where there are mandatory reporting laws. Um, not not everybody's a mandatory reporter, but even those who aren't mandatory reporters can report uh, suspected child abuse, and that again allows the civil authorities to to do their job of investigation and protection. Those are tough, very, very tough situations. Anybody else have a question? How do you do this when you're trying to like talk to a child? Okay? Yeah. Because their heart's not really quite there. They're still learning. How, how, like, what's the suggestions that you could give for parents who are trying to speak into their child, children, but also understanding that maybe we are doing something wrong? Yeah, I think one of the best things we can do as parents is model uh, personal confession and seeking forgiveness. That where we have sinned toward our kids, I've, sadly, I've had to do this many times. Uh, we need to seek our kids' forgiveness and acknowledge to them, you know, I was wrong when I uh, responded in a flash of anger, when I you know, gave a, 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 a kind of a knee jerk reaction of a discipline you know this is something that over the years uh, Rachel's helped me to work on where in the past I would just you know whatever the situation would be I would just say okay no more screen time for a year (laughs) you know it's like ah that's a little bit too much (laughs) Um, and so you know where we've crossed the line where we've acted out of anger or lack of self-control out of uh, a lack of love and patience and gentleness. We we should confess that to them, and uh, we we should speak in a way, you know, like I was saying um, from the page thirty five, that the the way we judge uh, should reflect the Christ like character. That when we are trying to confront, and we'll talk about confrontation later in the class, but um, uh, when we are confronting, that we're we're doing it in a way to the best of our ability that is gentle, that is patient, that is gracious, that is recognizing where the person is at. And if there's any time that that's critically important is with a child because of, like you were saying, you know, they're not all there, right? The maturity level is not there. This, maybe they're not saved. Uh, the, just there's so many dynamics of a child's life that makes it completely different than talking to an adult. And so recognizing where my child is at Spiritually, emotionally, maturity-wise, um, you know, and their thinking, their understanding, their personality uh, should play into how we approach them, so that we don't approach them in a way that causes them to, you know, constantly be backing <coughs> off or just immediately rejecting. Now, you know, in their own heart, you know, they can be rebellious and do that, no matter how good or how uh, gently we speak. 
But as far as it depends on us, our approach should be with grace, gentleness, um, and uh, uh, you know, um, love in, in a way that they are utterly convinced that we love them. Uh, in fact, J.C. Ryle has a little booklet called On Parenting, I think. Um, and one of the things he, he says in there is make sure that your kids know that you love them. You know, yes, we're going to discipline, we're going to have to do corporal punishment, we're going to have to instruct and, and all, all kinds of things that aren't going to be fun and enjoyable for our kids. We're going to have to bring various kinds and degrees of pain into their life. But we need to make sure that our kids are utterly convinced that we love them so that uh, they are drawn to us and not away from us in the midst of discipline or confrontation uh, or those conversations when we're just having to help them think through their decisions um, and, and why they did what they did and whatnot. Um, so, is that helpful? Yeah, these, these are all great, great questions and there's a lot to think through here. I would say this, you know, whether you're a parent, whether you're a boss or a teacher or in a position of authority over someone, there would be a natural, I think, a, a sinful fear of, well, if I acknowledge my wrong, if I confess my sin, that's going to kind of diminish me in their eyes, in the eyes of this person who should be submitted to me. And I, I, need, to, I need to show myself strong and that I'm, you know, I'm the leader, I'm the, the one with authority. And I think what's, what Jesus would say to that is, that's that's the wrong thing to think. That uh, you you exist, whatever authority you have over others, when you sin against them, you exist to love them and to serve them as a sacrifice. And so, when you you confess your sins, uh, that will uh, that will be a model and example uh, to them, not not diminish their view or or cause them to disrespect you in any way. All right, finding the log. Uh, of your eye. So in many cases, some of your contribution to the conflict, your sin, will be fairly obvious, right? (laughs) You'll know, hey, I did this, or I said that, or I didn't do that. I walked away in an angry way, you know, I slammed the door, you know, whatever it is. You're going to know exactly what your contribution was. So you'll be able to identify sinful attitudes, thoughts, words, actions that contributed to the conflict. But we shouldn't stop just with that. And, and, you know, moving immediately to, I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't have said that. I, I know I shouldn't have done that. Uh, remember, as we talked about last week, that uh, our actions doesn't start with what comes out of our mouth or when our body moves. It begins in the heart. And so we need to consider how have I sinned in my heart but also we have to acknowledge that that's difficult. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Um, so we have to do careful thought and not just assume that, you know, oh, as soon as I ask the question, how did I sin in my heart? Boom, the answer is going to be right there. <laughs> no, it's going to take us time and humility and consideration. And maybe even I might even need to ask someone, either the person I sinned against or or others, hey, help me to evaluate my own heart because uh, I'm not sure I'm seeing everything. Again, as a believer, you have a new heart, you are a new creation, but the flesh still remains and sometimes obscures our vision. And so 
that with a lacking with a, a lack of understanding of God's word as much as we ought uh, we uh, we need help understanding what's going on in our heart so first thing we can do is cry out to the Lord Psalm 139 there search me O God and know my heart try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting so we humble ourselves when we first say to the Lord, Lord, help me to examine my heart. Lord, if there's any way that I've sinned, if there's any wrong thinking, wrong attitudes, wrong actions, give me, uh, give me that insight that I'm, that I'm not already seeing so that I can confess it uh, and uh, acknowledge it. And so again, our propensity to self-deception is why God has given us others in the body of Christ whom we, whom we can ask for help. Uh, when multiple people come to you and they're saying similar things, hey, this is something that I'm seeing in you. Um, when one person says something, we can be self-defensive. Like, ah, they don't really know me. <laughs> but when multiple people say things, we need to pay attention. We're like, man, I don't see this in myself, but now I have two, three, four, ten, twenty <laughs> people coming to me saying, hey, you know, have you ever noticed how you do this? Or... I've seen this pattern. And so we need to be very humble and listen uh, to the input of others in our lives. I'm just going to move on to the other paragraph. So uh, once, um, once you've acknowledged the, the easy stuff in, in your life, the, the obvious outward manifestations that you already know of your contribution to the conflict, uh, there's a series of questions you could ask yourself that will help you examine your own heart in ways in which you have uh, contributed to the conflict, uh, not just externally, but even in, in the heart. Um, and, and some of these are ways of framing what we already know. Like we can acknowledge, hey, I, you know, I called you a fool. You fool. And we can say, okay, I shouldn't have done that. You know, please forgive me. And that's, it's fine. It's good to acknowledge. But we also have to think about what does it, what's the significance of the fact that I did that? Uh, what, how, how is that received? What impact did that have on the other person? What was my own heart attitude in even saying that? You know, what, what was in my heart that drove that? Um, I mean, just keep it innocent or uh, um, anonymous. But one of my kids, um, one of my younger kids, punched one of their siblings this week. <laughs> and uh, that's never happened before in our, in our home, thankfully. Uh, but as I was talking to that child, I was uh, using the language of Matthew uh, uh, 5, where Jesus says, you know, if you're angry uh, with your brother and you say, you fool, or you're good for nothing, call them, call them a name, it's the same as murder. And, uh, you know, Physical violence, punching, is obviously a level above that. It's much closer to murder. And so I was trying to help them see this is how God evaluates, you know, where that comes from. And uh, um, our natural tendency is to say, well, that was just, you know, just my body moving. You know, I had no control over that. It's like, yeah, I understand that. But that's because in your own heart you've developed a way of thinking and responding about things that has led to that that's not uh you know you've always responded in love and gentleness and kindness and then this one instance <laughs> you you got violent no 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 there's been a pattern of 
ungodliness and uh, and whatnot. And so um, we need to think about the, what, what's the significance of, of what I've done, even uh, in addition to just acknowledging the fact that I've done it. So first question we can ask is, in what ways were my speech, words, tone, timing, unwholesome and unedifying? And uh, unwholesome there in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed. That literally means to tear down, to destroy. And it's contrasted with the idea of, of building up. Edification is to build up. The word unwholesome means to tear down. So in what way did my speech uh, tear down uh, the other person? Uh, were my words crass, sharp, stinging, or otherwise hurtful? Uh, what was I trying to accomplish by speaking this way? You know, yes, I'll admit I was trying to tear them down. I was trying to make them feel less than. I was trying to uh, make them feel uh, like they are are not. Uh, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Um, uh, worth living. Uh, people I've I've heard believers say to one another, "I wish you were dead." I can't believe that. I wish you were dead. That's tragic. That's that's a wicked thing to say. But the heart that is set on uh, anger and that is uh, driven in that pattern uh, can say the worst things. Uh, number two, what, in what ways did my speech attack the other person? Uh, what desire or expectations of mine did they not meet? Uh, how did I uh, verbally uh, attack them? There, that Matthew 5 passage. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You know, when we say some things, we are attacking the character of the person. We're, we're ascribing to them a, a, a value. We're removing dignity. We're tearing them down, attacking them throwing swords and knives at them. In what ways did my speech deny the image of God in the other person? What does such speech reflect about my thinking about them? James 3.9, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Right? All of us as human beings are made in the likeness of God, in the image of God, even unbelievers. And because of that, we are... Uh, worthy, if you will, of respect and dignity. We have value, inherent value. And yet, sometimes with our speech, we can deny that inherent value. We can call someone an animal. You know, we can refer to someone in a way that that, uh, basically says to them, you are not worth anything. You don't have any dignity that I should consider you valuable. We can tear them down in that way. Or number four, in what way did my speech seek to manipulate the other person? How did I attempt to control them? This is the language of, uh, not Bathsheba, um, Delilah with Samson. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him his soul was annoyed to death. Right? So we can speak, not just once, but repeatedly in a way that manipulates, that we're just trying to control and, and conform someone to, uh, to our, you know, our way of thinking or whatever we want them to, to do. 
or how we want them to think. And so how is my speech uh, aimed at manipulating them? We need to consider that. Those who uh, uh, practice abuse, who are abusive and uh, even have the character of uh, being an abuser, this is dominating in their behavior, that they seek to manipulate uh, by their words. Number five, in what ways were my words and actions of the flesh and thus at war with the spirit? And you see Galatians 5, the various uh, aspects, immorality, impure, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In what ways did I manifest the deeds of the flesh? Number six, in what ways did I not manifest the fruit of the Spirit? You know, the opposite of those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Number seven, what lie was I believing about the situation? Uh, Instead of believing the truth of God that He has revealed, of what He's called me to do and my priorities and how I should be glorifying Him, what have I exchanged that for? What lie have I exchanged those truths for? Elevating myself or desiring uh, the things that I think will, will make me happy or what I think is right. And then finally, in what ways were my desires disordered or unmeasured? What did I desire so strongly that I was willing to sin to obtain or sin because I couldn't have it? So what was I wanting and, and how did those desires manifest that they were sinful desires? So th- these are questions for self-reflection. The disclaimer there basically says... I'm not saying you have to ask these questions every time. <laughs> you know, put these in your pocket, and every time you have a conflict, pull them out. And that, that's not usually necessary. Most of the conflicts we have are so small and so isolated that that's not necessary. But significant conflicts, ongoing patterns of conflict, relational uh, relationships that are broken, where you're like, I just, I just can't figure out how to get get uh, past this and, and get over this conflict with this person. Uh, it's worth taking the time to reflect on your own speech, your own actions, and think through these different dynamics. These, this is not an exhaustive list, but I trust you would agree this is a helpful list of just self-reflection and self-examination. So this, this is all an attempt to not just acknowledge that there's a log in my eye, but to um, look at the details of that log and understand that log, understand its significance, its size, its impact, and so on. Once you have uh, your own understanding of how you have contributed to a conflict, the next step is to confess it to, uh, the next major step is to confess it to others, which we'll again talk about next week, but even before that, the first thing we should do is confess it to God. Confess to God that we have sin before him, that we have violated his standard. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Psalm 51.4, the third verse there, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The reason we can say that is because God is the law giver. And so when we violate the law, we're violating God's law. We're not violating the law of another person. We're violating God's law. And so he is our judge and it's to him that we confess our sin primarily. And we see how that's manifested um, 
in uh, other passages. So like in Genesis 20, when Abimelech took Sarah, of course, having been deceived by Abram, uh, the Lord said to Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against me. He didn't say, I kept you from sinning against Abram or sinning against Sarah. He said, I kept you from sinning against me. And then with jo- uh, Joseph, when he was being enticed by Potiphar's wife, he said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He did acknowledge that this would also be a sin against Potiphar. He said, there is no one greater in, his, in this house than I. And he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you. But first and foremost, the sin would be against God. So because our sin is against God, that's where we want to confess our sin. And this is one of the challenges with with training our kids early on is, um, you know, we want to teach them and we often do, hey, you need to say I'm sorry to your brother or sister or you need to say I'm sorry to mommy or daddy or whatever. Um, But we also need to teach them that their sin is against God. And they need to confess that and acknowledge that. And some might say, well, why do we need to confess our sin to God? Why do we need to seek God's forgiveness? Haven't we already been forgiven by God? And the answer to that is, though all of our sin is judicially forgiven, right? God has wiped away our sin on the cross. And so we can't undo God's work of regeneration and and forgiveness. It's still imperative to confess our sins to the Lord and receive his relational forgiveness. So in the same way that, you know, as a parent and a child, you know, as a parent, you're not going to send your kid off to jail. You're not going to reject your child when they sin against you. But their sin against you has hindered the relationship. And so as a, a parent, you need to, you need to, uh, you know, they need to forgive, seek forgiveness. And you need to forgive to repair the relationship. That's what we're doing with God. We're acknowledging in this moment, in time and space, I'm, uh, I've sinned against God. My relationship with him is hindered, and so I want to seek his forgiveness. Yeah, just... Yes, um, with, so I have several, several children who often don't recognize their fault in yeah. a situation. Yeah. Is it still worthwhile to have them apologize, even though you know they don't mean it? <laughs> yeah. And like, are uh, you teaching them to lie by saying, I'm sorry, when they're not sorry? Yeah. No, so how that... do you kind of navigate that? Oh, gosh. I'm not the standard of of you know perfect parenting i think i i have erred and i probably would err again in teaching them patterns uh of of responses so i want to help them to see this is how you resolve things even though i can tell they're not meaning it that's common in our home especially when they were younger um and I think what I, you know, obviously our kids are a little bit older than yours. I think what I've experienced is as they have gotten older, the pattern that they learned has become, um, I'm not going to say natural, <laughs> um, but uh, it has become more instilled where it's actually effective and it, it it's, um, uh, it's more yeah, effective, I guess is, is just the right word. And so... Uh, I, I think it's good to teach them to do it, even if their heart's not in it. But um, as they grow, part of the growth process is watching that to see if there's a development there. Uh, you know, the older they get, obviously when they're two years old, they're not going to understand. Or when they're four years old, they're probably not going to really understand. But when they get to that place where you can have those heart-level conversations, um, then they can start uh, having 
the pattern from the past, they can start understanding and practicing it in a deeper way. Uh, in the same way that even as believers, sometimes we do things not because we are like thrilled about it, but because we just know I'm just supposed to do this, right? Whether it's daily Bible reading, you know, where we're not like, oh, I'm going to read my Bible today. But we're like, yeah, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so sometimes it's an act of faith and obedience. And so that's it's a similar kind of idea, I would say. I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but that's my own perspective. What's that? I would like to add to what you just said. Okay. Thank you. Um, yes, it's hard with children, but what um, I've adopted is the way whereby you do something wrong. I pointed to a value in the house, either disrespect, I want but you have to respectful or humble or things like that. And I'll be like, okay, what you did was wrong. You need to apologize. And they have to go through the sentence. I'm sorry that I called you a name. I'm sorry that I pushed you. I recognize that this is disrespectful. I must have brought you. I won't do it again. So they might say it gradually, <laughs> but I'll make them go through, apologize. The reason why you apologize is because it's either disrespectful or you didn't show that you were humble or you showed pride. Um, they said just answer their brother for that. You know, and then I wouldn't do it again. Of course, in the next week, they might do the same thing again, <laughs> you know, but they have to know the reason why. If not, they will be like, I'm sorry, and they go. Right. They have to know that they put down the person, and this is a value that is actually um, sure. worked against. Yeah. I hope that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is helpful, and uh, we've always emphasized the phrase, will you forgive me? Yeah. Will you forgive me? So that the sibling or parent, you know, whoever they've sinned against, can have that transaction of, yes, I forgive you. In fact, <laughs> with the situation that happened this week, I, I asked uh, him, because it, it happened before I came home from work, um, and he was in his room waiting for me when I came home. <laughs> and uh, so I said, have you asked his forgiveness? And he's like, yes, but he didn't say anything. <laughs> and so you know, as we talked, then I had him you know, give a more full, here's what I think you should say. You know, here's what you should acknowledge, and I want you to ask him again. And if he doesn't say anything, then at least you've done what, you're, what you should do. Um, the funny thing is with Micah, uh, when he was younger, he would mess up the phrase, will you forgive me? And say it, it would be the reverse. However, it would come out something like, uh, "Do I forgive you?" or something like that. You know, it's like. But he's finally gotten past that, and he says it properly now. Um, but I think that transaction is helpful. And you know, as a parent, if you want to avoid the language of "I'm sorry" because you know they don't actually they're not actually sorry, you, know, you can do that. Acknowledge the wrong. I, you know, I was wrong to say this or do that. Will you forgive me? And I think just it's a pattern that you're teaching, uh, knowing that every instance is not going to be a genuine reflection of their heart. Again, I just want to say, we talked about uh, a couple of difficult things were brought up today, you know, violence and whatnot. These are tough things. And so um, if you know, there are things in your own life that you've experienced or personal struggles that you have or things that you're aware of where you have concerns for others, um, you're not left to yourself. You're part of the local body of Christ. And so seek help and encouragement from others, you know, from me, from other pastors or leaders. And uh, we would be glad to come alongside and minister to you.